we've arrived at, uh, and we're going to stay in the passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we all have life regrets, right? In my top five regrets in my own life is really uh, my last church. Last church was a great church. It was powerful. It was rich. Had kind of, I, I, this is kind of a spiritual terminology, but it had a fragrance in the community because of what it was. It was just a powerful, great church. So uh, when I left and came here, they called a pastor, and I called him up and said, hey, how are you doing? wasn't very friendly, but I just assumed no big deal. But over the next probably four years, I began to hear troubling things. I began to hear about some of my people leaving, going to other churches in town, still going to church. As a matter of fact, everybody did, but the church I'd spent four and a half years of my life in was beginning to uh, disintegrate. And so it sort of came to a head where uh, they had a budget meeting and the pastor said, well, we can't give the youth guy a raise. I have more education than he does, so I should get a higher raise. And so they kind of agreed with that. And somehow one of the deacons went to Southwestern. He was there for something. So he looked this pastor up and found EX by his name. So he asked him in the library, what did that mean? And they said, well, it meant he attended here, never graduated. So they began to go back off his resume and found out he'd not graduated from seminary, not graduated from the college he said he did, hadn't graduated from the junior college, hadn't graduated from high school. And then my minister of education sent me a tape. He got up and tried to smooth this over in a sermon. He sent me a tape and a copy of his resume, and he said, read the resume, listen to the sermon. So sure enough, I read the resume and listen to the sermon, and he even lied about where he was born. I, I, why do you do that? So, of course, he got up one Sunday morning and he said, look, I, I know I've done this. I'm always feeling behind other pastors who are more educated, so will you forgive me? Well, at this point, it's not a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of whether or not you're qualified to be in the pulpit. So he pushed and pushed and eventually... He was outed, but the church, to this day, 30 years later, well, I guess 26 years later, has never really recovered. Now, man, it's a heartbreak for me. Hard to watch. Gave four and a half years of my life there. I think that's what you really have in 2 Corinthians. We got a guy that's watching a church he started, he spent a year and a half at, which is huge for this guy, and he's watching this church begin to disintegrate, and he's just crushed. So he's written all these letters, and this book is really hard to work through. It's not logically, sequentially, we've talked about that. What he's doing, he's just pouring his guts out to this church, and then as he pours his guts out, periodically we have kind of this great theological truth that is embedded inside his passion. So his passion is, remember last week, he told them they had a guy they had to get rid of. 
because he was living in a sin that even the lost people in Corinth weren't living in. And he was worried, number one, that they wouldn't do it. Number two, that they would hate him for even suggesting that because loved them. And so Titus comes to him and says, Hey man, got the letter there? They did exactly what you said. They were kind to me. And they still like you. So he writes his response to them about how this touches him. In that response, he leaves a verse that is the single most powerful verse in all the Word of God in defining repentance. There is no verse that you can read better that will explain to you more clearly what it is to actually be repentant. Now, I'm going to have to use a couple of Greek words today. I'm going to sound them out. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to trust me. So look at 2 Corinthians 7, really beginning in verse 9. Listen to what he says. I rejoice now, not that you were grieved, but that you were grieved in repentance. Uh, You were grieved in a godly way that we wouldn't lose anything. Now watch this. Listen to verse 10. Godly grief produces repentance. Now that Greek word, we're going to sit it over here, that Greek word is metanoia. It produces repentance, okay? Now, look at what he says. He works through this, and he says, without remorse, metameliton. That's over here. We're going to put that Greek word over here, okay? Godly grief, he says. Now listen to what he says. We're going to work through a couple passages today. Cowboys don't play to thirsty. Back up. Here we go. So we're going to work through some passages today, but I want you to look at this. Metanoia over here. Metamelitos over here. Here's what he says. Godly grief produces this without this. Metanoia and metamelitos don't occur in the same thing. If you have this, you can't have this. Okay? Now look at what he says. Godly grief produces a repentance that results in salvation without remorse, but worldly grief produces death. Now, listen to what he says. Okay? There are two kinds of weeping. He uses the Greek word lupe, grief. You can weep here, you can weep here. You can cry big tears here, you can cry big tears here. But the tears here are repentant and produce salvation. The tears over here, same amount of tears, same amount of bawling, same amount of crying, they kill you. So it is not how well you cry that determines whether or not you're repentant. You can literally bawl your eyes out and miss Jesus. You say, well, how in the world does that work? Walk with me, Matthew 27. Go with me to the 27th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. Now, before we get here, let me walk you through where we are. If you remember, on the last night when Jesus finishes the Lord's Supper, right? 
And he's walking with them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has, uh, he's, he's gone through John 14, 15, 16, 17. He prays with them. He gets them to the garden, and he begins to pray. Now, while he's praying, when he gets up the third time, he says, it's okay, they're here. Now, follow what happens. If you can follow what happens, you're going to understand the difference between repentance and remorse. It's key. Judas shows up. Remember, the other 11 are here. Judas is left in the middle of the Lord's Supper, or in the middle of the Passover. He shows up. He walks over to Jesus, strolls over, and remember, he's hacked. Why? Because Tuesday night before, he busted Jesus over the woman pouring the year's salary of perfume on him because he's been stealing it, and Jesus pops him back in front of everybody, so he's hacked. On that night, he's made a deal with the chief priests and elders. He said, look, I know where he'll go. I'll bring you to him. So on this night, they bring them to him, and he walks over to Jesus. Now, now watch, okay? He walks over to Jesus. He walks up to him, so they make eye contact, right? How do we know that? Because he kisses him. He told them. He said, the guy I kiss is the guy you're after. So he walks up to Jesus, and he kisses him. Jesus responds to him and says, that's how you betray me? Kiss? So, they make eye contact, right? Right? Whew. You awake? You with me? Okay. We're going to ask several questions today. You get to respond. It's not often, but you have to respond to the question, not what you think about me. So, here we go. So, they make eye contact. Judas leaves, they grab Jesus, and they haul him off. Now, when they take him off, ten guys hoof it home. They're done. Two guys follow him. Now, they take him from the garden all the way to the house of Caiaphas, who's the high priest. They drop him down in a hole, and they leave him there for a little while. Why? Because nobody's up. It's like 10.30 at night, everybody's in bed, they have no idea this deal is cooking. So the Sanhedrin, the leaders, Annas, Caiaphas, his father-in-law, who was a former high priest, they have to send people out. So they get all these people out, they got to get the bulk of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin there, and they got to get some people to come in and lie about him. Remember, they try to have the false witnesses. So they gather everybody, and while they're doing that, Peter, we don't know where Judas is, but he's going to appear. Peter is outside Cold, he's warming himself by the fire. And you remember what happened? Somebody comes up to him and says, Hey, there's a guy down there in a dungeon. Aren't you one of his disciples? No. No. So we know he does that third time. And this happens all night long while they're jacking with Jesus. When they finally get done with Jesus, several things happen at one time. Right at dawn, which New Jewish Day always started at 6 a.m., they can't do anything with him uh, till after six because that's the Jewish law. They can beat him without okay, but they can't violate that law. So they've got to wait till 6 a.m. So at 6 a.m., they start taking him down. They're going to walk him from Caiaphas' house over to the Antonio Fortress so they can face Pilate because they want him dead. As they step out of the room, several things occur. Rooster crows. Bible says, it actually says Jesus heard it. 
and remembered the word he'd given to Judas, I mean to Peter, and he turns. And the Bible says he looks over at Peter, so their eyes meet. When Peter sees Jesus, he hears the cock crow, and he has just cursed so foul that even the people that are sure he belongs to Jesus have backed off of him saying, yeah, nobody would talk that way if they belong to Jesus. And now Jesus comes out. Peter's just done that. He looks at Jesus. Their eyes meet. The very next verse, meaning the very next moment, Peter says, oh my goodness. And it says, he left and wept bitterly. Right here is Matthew 27.1. Now watch the text. This morning the elders, chief priests and elders of the people uh, took Jesus that, and uh, made a decision against Jesus that they might kill him and they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then Judas, the one who betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, now, watch this, when he saw that he was condemned, became metamelatos. Remember, that's the Greek word in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that he says, if you have it, you can't be repentant. It says he became this word, not that word. It is very precise in the Greek. He became metamelatos, and he threw... He, he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priest and said, I have sinned, I betrayed innocent blood. They said, that's not our problem, you look into it. And he threw the silver into the temple. He went out, and when he went out, he hung himself. Now, I want you to notice something with me, okay? Both guys show grief. Peter shows grief because he goes home and he cries. He weeps bitterly. There's grief. Judas shows grief. This whole thing is grief. He looks up. They're taking him to Pilate. He had no idea it would go that far. He just wanted to bust him a little. When he realizes it's going that far, he takes the money. He goes into the temple and he says, I, I, I failed. I, I betrayed innocent blood. And they look at him and say, in the Hebrew, bummer. He throws it in there, another sign of passionate grief. He runs out, and in another act of passionate grief, gets a rope and hangs himself. What did 2 Corinthians 10, 7, 10 say? If you have repentance without remorse, it results in what? Salvation. If you repent without this, but with metamelitas, if you repent with remorse, or not repent, but if you're grieved with remorse, what does it produce according to 2 Corinthians 17? What did it say? Death. It says distinctly in the Greek, he's here. He doesn't have repentance. He has remorse. And what does he do? He takes his own life. What happens to Peter? 
He preaches. He gets, he gets out of this deal. He's sitting in Galilee. He's fishing. Looks up, sees Jesus, swims to shore. He's unclothed, clothes himself. Jesus and he have a conversation. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Here we go. And at Pentecost, he will preach 3,000 people will be saved. Now, I know we use the word betrayal and denial, but when you get right down to the core of it, both men busted Jesus. They both denied him. They both betrayed him. I don't care what word you use. Their sin was the same. There's no difference between their sins. Judas didn't do anything different than Peter did. Their sin's the same. They both feel grief. They're both crying. Peter's going out and weeping bitterly. Judas is in there with tears in his eyes going, I betrayed innocent blood. They say it's a bummer. He throws it in, and while he's hanging himself, he's crying. There's no distinction in their sin. There's no distinction in their guilt. There's no distinction in their grief. But the Bible's clear. The Holy Spirit through the Greek wrote and said, Judas had metamelitas, Peter had metanoia. What is the difference? One key thing. It says in Matthew 27, when Judas saw that he was condemned. If it had said, when Judas saw that he was betrayed, then we'd have repentance. But the fact is, he's never sorry that he betrayed Jesus. He's never sorry that he hurt Jesus. He looks Jesus straight in the eyeballs when he kisses him, and he walks off and into care. Peter spends the night cursing Jesus, and all of a sudden when he sees the eyeballs of Jesus, in Luke 22, it shatters him, and he goes out and weeps. Why? Peter's grief is centered on the person of Jesus. Judas's grief is centered on the consequence of his betrayal. As long as you are grieved over the consequence and not the sin, you will never be repentant, and you will never experience God the grief. This is what happens when we sin in a big way. If I go out this week and have an affair, and you'll know that because uh, my wife will be standing over me with a pistol <laughs> with an empty mag going, how do you reload this? So, <laughs> But if I have an affair, the tough thing for me will be, am I repentant because I betrayed my God, or am I repentant because I'm embarrassed that everybody in the community knows what I've done? Judas is sorry for the consequence. Peter's sorry for the sin. Repentance is when you're sorry for the act because it betrays Jesus Christ. Remorse is when you're sorry for the consequence of the act. You don't even care if you do that. See, Peter is not going to do this again. Judas will do this over and over and over as long as the consequence isn't there. Repentance. You hurt Jesus. Remorse. You basically hurt yourself. I remember in college I had a particular sin that I was struggling with and I remember one night I'm walking across Quadrangle and I'm praying and I, I'm really bothered by it and I, I can't stop it and I can't control it. And now I'm going to share two epiphanous 
moments today, but this is not the norm for me, but I remember that night, Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, uh, what do you want this sin out of your life? I said, because. I'm thinking it's a stupid question. I said, because. Call me to preach. I can't preach and live inside an unrepentant sin. And then as clear as I can ever remember the Holy Spirit speaking. He said, you know, it's not sin because it damages your ministry. It's sin because it damages your father's heart. It's not sin because of the consequence. It's sin because it hurts Jesus Christ. You know, you got the guy in the Old Testament, David, right? The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart, and we all think, well, that's got to mean that he doesn't sin. Now, we all know he has the moment with Bathsheba where he betrayed basically everybody. He betrayed his wife. He betrayed her. Her husband is one of his 30 mighty men, Uriah. He kills him. He betrayed him. He betrayed their children. He betrayed all of his mighty men. He betrayed his nation. He blew it up with everybody. As a matter of fact, the consequences will live long. His family will never recover from this. We don't have time to go into that. It's amazing what happens to him. But when Nathan finally comes in and says, you're the guy. He writes Psalm 51, and he makes the most amazing statement. He says, after all that he sinned, sinned against his kids, his family, his nation, his mighty men, Uriah and Bathsheba. He says, and this is why the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. He makes this statement in Psalm 51. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now that's it. Say, so, okay. So, if that's true, How do I get from metameletos to metanoia? How do I make the shift in my life? I do think I really grieve over the consequences of my sin. How do I get to the place where I grieve over Jesus? That's the question really, isn't it? I have the answer. Now, I want you to hear me. The answer is simple, but it will probably be the opposite of how most of us in this room live our lives. So I want you to walk with me. Go to Romans 8. Last thing we'll look at. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 12. Now, listen to what he says. So then, my brothers, we are obligated not to walk according to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh, but if, because if you live according to the flesh, you're about to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, now watch this, these are the sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of adoption, again, resulting in fear. Uh, I'm sorry, you did not have a spirit of slavery resulting in fear, but you received a spirit of adoption 
by which we cry, Abba, Father. And this same Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. Now, I told I preached on this at the convention this week. As a matter of fact, there were five of us. We walked through the Romans chapter 8 in an exegetical study. I told them, I said, the reason Abba is in the Bible is not so you can impress your church with a little bit of Aramaic you don't know. Abba's what? Aramaic for what? Daddy. Absolutely. So the whole passage is, this little section, is the idea. Now, listen. Listen, if I walk in the Spirit, it produces, now listen, intimacy with the Father, by which I call Him Abba, Father. He confirms to me that I'm His child. I have this adoption. I'm not enslaved. So this whole thing of God and I being intimate is rooted in only Walking in the Spirit. That is the absolute root of intimacy in the life of a believer. Now, if I become intimate with the Father, I love Him. We have a relationship. I'm living out of that relationship. It's the core of all I am. If I do that, every time I sin, I will immediately be grieved by Him. I won't care about the consequence. I will care that it bothers Him. So, if I make the shift from consequence to Jesus, it's going to have to be based on walking in the Spirit. Does that fit that text? Not a trick question? The answer is yes, it does. I preached it last week, so yes, it does. Now, now listen, I would guess, I'm going to be kind here, but I would guess 90% of Christians that I if, I, if I say to them, the solution to your life is to walk in the Spirit. But this is what 90% of them would do. You'll go home, and you'll do this. You'll say to yourself, okay, I need to walk in the Spirit, so here's what I need to do. I need to pray better. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to be more diligent. I'm going to pray longer. The Bible says pray without ceasing. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to have my prayer time. I'm going to really, really pray. I'm going to do the acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I'm going to pray exactly the way. I'm going to pray hard. Second thing you'll do is you'll go home and say, I'm going to get in the Word. I'm going to dig this out. I'm going to study it. I'm going to read chapters. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. I'm going to, really, I'm going to dig out the Word. Thirdly, I'm going to worship well. I'm going to listen to KSBJ for the rest of my life. I'm going to worship. I'm going to sing in my car. So the police arrest me because they think I'm not on Bluetooth. I'm going to sing. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to worship my heart out. And boy, if I do those things, 
then uh, if I do those things, I'll be filled with Spirit. And that is the genius of the enemy. Those things do not create being filled with Spirit. Being filled in the Spirit creates those things. What does the Bible say? Pray in the Spirit. You can't pray properly without the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, yes, I can. No, you can't. You'll pray your will. The Bible says very clearly, you don't pray your will, you pray His will. It's what he said in Matthew 5. It's what it says in 1 John 5. It's what it says in 1 Kings 18. It's what it says in James 5. You pray his will. He said, I can do that. No, you can't. You can pray his will when it's okay with your will, but when it's not okay with your will, you can't pray that, and you don't know what it is until God's Holy Spirit tells you what to pray. So your prayer life is conditioned on the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. This book... I don't care how much Greek you know. I don't care how much Hebrew you know. I don't care how many systematic theologies you've memorized. The Holy Spirit wrote it, and the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind as to the truth of what it says. Worship? What did Jesus say in John 4? You worship in what? Spirit and in truth. You can't worship because you hold your hands up and you cry. You worship when the Holy Spirit fills you. You can't worship God properly in the flesh. You can only worship God properly when the Holy Spirit of God fills you. So what we have done, we have taken the things that are consequential from the filling of the Spirit and we've tried to use them to be filled with the Spirit. We have it completely backwards. You say, well, okay, preacher, then what do you do? Here it is. I'm going to give you one more pivotal story, and then we're done, but here it is. When we were, five of us were planning to preach Romans 8 at the convention, we had a conference call with Dr. David Allen, who's my major prophet at Southwestern. He's preached here, and he, uh, he was walking us through Romans 8. Now, David is brilliant in seeing the forest in Scripture. And I never thought about this until he made it statement, but he said, Romans 1 through 3 basically is that you're bad. Romans 4 and 5 is basically that Jesus isn't bad and he's your Savior. And when you get in chapter 6, chapter 6, it starts talking to you about how to live as a result of this change that's come in your life. Now, the Bible's full of commands, right? All sorts of commands. There is no command in the first three chapters of Romans. Why? Because all it says is you're bad. There's nothing to command about that. You can't fix that. There's no command in the next two chapters about Jesus saving you. Why? Because there's nothing you can do about Jesus saving you. It's up to God. The first command is in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, when God begins to talk about the salvation that he's brought to you in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, here's the first command. It's not anything you do, it's what you believe. Look at this. Thus, consider yourselves to be dead to sin on the one hand, but on the other hand, alive to God in Christ 
Jesus. Now listen, you want to be filled with the Spirit? You have to get up each morning, every morning. If you've come to a place where the Holy Spirit told you you're bad, if you come to a place where the Holy Spirit's told you you're, He's good, He's righteous, and that you need to make the trade of His righteousness for your bad, and that occurred, that transaction occurred in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you believe when the Holy Spirit tells you that, then you have been saved, your sin's been washed away, the Holy Spirit now dwells you, and now you can be filled with the Spirit of God. How are you filled with the Spirit of God? You get up in the morning and you believe you are. You trust you are, and you rely on that. Now, here's the weird thing for me. I always struggled with this until I came to Romans 6.11. The Greek is the most expressive language I've ever studied. It's got all sorts of different words for different things, just like today. You've got a word for remorse and a word for repentance. They're distinct. You've got four Greek words for love, which makes sense. In English, we say, I love my dear rifle, I love my wife. <laughs> my wife's not sure sometimes where that is because... It's the same word. So you have to add adjectives, not Greek. The only place in Greek where there's one word that has to be translated 20 different ways is the word believe. Rely, trust, have faith in. It's all one word in the Greek. And I used to couldn't understand it. Why in the world would the Greek be so expressive in all these other things, but not in this one area? Because that one area, it's all the same. If I really believe the Holy Spirit indwells me and will empower me, then I will rely on that. I won't rely on that if I don't believe that. Everything falls under one word because everything's the same. You will be filled in the Spirit when you get up tomorrow morning. If you get up and throughout the day you rely and depend on the Holy Spirit of God in you, and you not only rely on Him, but you believe that He will empower you when you live that way in absolute reliance on Him, not you, not how well you pray, not how smart you are in the Bible, not how many times you went to church this week, not how cool you are in worship. If you rely not on any of those things, but on purely the Holy Spirit's indwelling in you and His activity in your life, if you get up in the morning and you rely on that and you believe on that, He will fill you and all these other things will come. Isn't it interesting? And I'm embarrassed. I've preached on this. All my life, I've heard how we need a quiet time, right? It's nowhere in the Bible. I've had people say to me, you've got to pray early in the morning. Jesus did. He also prayed all night. How often did he pray? I don't know. How often did Paul pray? No idea. How many chapters of the Bible did he read every day? Got nothing. Walking with God is not a discipline, it is a relationship. And when you trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, He creates a relationship out of which you will want to read this, you will want to pray, you will want to worship, and Sundays will be a total change if you live in the power of the Spirit. He changes those Last thing, and generally, it's going to bring you to that point, is failure. 
I shared the first failure in college. God spoke to me about motivation. But my second failure was in my second church. I, uh, they were bad. They were horrible. They were cruel. They were mean. They were tough. No question. I'm there two and a half years, and about the end of my second year, I'm, it's one o'clock in the morning, somewhere around there, one or two, and I'm telling God how bad they are because obviously he doesn't know. So I'm telling him, I vent for probably 20, 30 minutes. It's passionate venting. I get done. Holy Spirit asked me a question. He said, did I send you there for them to love you or for you to love them? I remember looking up. It was that vivid, and I said, ah, you sent me here to love them. And then it was a quieter word. But the Holy Spirit said to me, so it doesn't matter whether or not they love you, does it? So I stepped from there, realizing two things. The sheep God had given me to shepherd, I hated. which seemed to be a pretty clear violation of my calling. And I realized one other thing, that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't change my hatred and love them. And that's when I realized that I needed His Spirit's power. And that altered my Your failures are the stepping stone to his power. Let's pray. Father, there are a lot of us that we have been brainwashed spiritually to think that it's how much we go to church and how much we study and how much we pray that sets you free in our life. Father, fix that in every heart in this room today. For those here that do not possess your spirit because they've never trusted in your son, let them trust in the blood transaction of Jesus Christ today. Make the difference in us this morning and in this corporate body. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Staff and I are here at the front. You may need to just pray about something. We're more than glad to do that. We will be here throughout uh, even the invitation, even the song as the choir sings and the praise team sings afterwards. But just understand, if we need to pray with you about anything, we'll be glad to do that. If you've never met Christ, this is a great time to do it. If God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship, you feel impression that way, we want you to come. And so as the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit moves here and speaks to you today, you respond.